You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John chapter 9, and we're going to read together the first 12 verses of John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes open? And he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is our desire that through your word we might behold the glory of your Son, that you would show us in your word our own failings, our own sin, our own inadequacies. God, that you would encourage us together in your word as we study it together, read it together, and meditate upon the things that are here. May we see Christ and be transformed into another degree of glory closer to him. Conform us, your people, to the image of your Son, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week we kind of did an overview of all of John chapter 9. And today I'm going to introduce you to the man who was born blind. Uh, we are going to, in the next couple of weeks, going to be following this man who was born blind. We're going to hear his testimony. We're going to see what happened to him. We're going to spend some time considering his condition and uh, the whole environment in which this man lived. And if I could make a prediction, it would be this, that by the end of John 9, you are going to have a real appreciation for this man who was born blind. You're going to have a real love for him, I think. I mean, I hope last week kind of whet your appetite for the type of man that this, this man was. And by the time we get to the end of the ninth chapter, I think you're going to love him. And I think you're going to look forward to meeting him in heaven. He's not named for us in the text. Did you notice that last week when we were going through that? He's not named. We have no idea what this man's name is. Uh, will we know that when we get to heaven and he is there? I don't know. We might walk around. Are you the guy that was born blind? Uh, no, I'm Martin Luther. Oh, nice to meet you, Martin Luther. I'm looking for the man in John 9 who was born blind. And it's a pleasure to see you too, Martin. I appreciate everything you did for us. But you're going to have an appreciation, I think, for this man born blind in John 9. And today we're going to just look at these first two verses of the ninth chapter. And you might think that's not a lot of ground to cover. Textually, it's not a lot of ground to cover. But these two verses really set up the whole of John 9 for us. So we're going to dive in. We're going to look at two things. The man and his condition in verse 1. And then the question that is asked of about this man and his condition in verse 2. And there is a lot that is really at the heart of this question in verse 2. So first, the man in his condition in verse 1. You'll see it says that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. It is Jesus 
who saw the man who was blind from birth. And as he passed by, I think that that is coming out of the temple. Now, one of the very first questions that we have to answer about the events of John 9 is this. When did this happen? Some people insert a time break between the discourse of chapter 8 and the miracle of chapter 9. Some people suggest it was the next day after the discourse of John 8. Some people suggest it was maybe a couple of weeks later that the miracle in John 9 happened. Some people are even willing to, to insert a break of two months between the, the discourse of chapter 8 and the events of chapter 9. And they base that upon chapter 10, verse 22, where it makes reference to the Feast of Dedication, which is two months after the discourse of chapter 8, because the discourse of chapter 8 was the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 10, verse 22 says these things took place at Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is two months later. I would suggest to you that the two-month break belongs in chapter 10 and not between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Now, here's why some people suggest that there should be a time break there. Some people say Jesus was leaving the temple and his life was in danger. He never would have stopped right outside the temple gate to heal somebody and to have this conversation with his disciples when he is leaving and his life is in danger and people inside are picking up stones to stone him. Might I suggest to you that in John chapter 9 and John chapter 8, Jesus' life was not in danger? Right? All the way to chapter 7, we saw that. They tried to seize him. They couldn't. His hour had not yet come. They wanted to kill him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. Jesus had just blinded the men in John chapter 8 to his presence, and he walked out of the temple with his disciples, not running for his life, trying to save his life. He walked out of the temple, sovereignly blinding them to his presence, and he would have had no problem at all stopping along the way to heal somebody as an example of some of the very teachings that he had covered in John chapter 8. Some suggest that the Jews never would have picked up stones to stone Jesus on the Sabbath because that would have been a violation of the Sabbath law. And so since we know that from verse 14 that this miracle took place on the Sabbath, it couldn't have been the same day of the event as the discourse in chapter 8 because the Jews never would have tried to stone him on the Sabbath because that would have been a violation of the Sabbath. What do you think? Do you think those hot-headed Jews were picking up stones and then thinking to themselves, oh, we can't do it, it's, it's the Sabbath, we can't kill him on the Sabbath? Look, the, the very act of killing him was a violation of what? A commandment. Do you think they cared what they did on the Sabbath? No. Had they stoned a man for breaking the Sabbath on the Sabbath, do you think that they would have been able to justify that? Now, they would have said, this is how we honor the Sabbath, by stoning Sabbath breakers on the Sabbath. I don't think they would have had a problem with that. Uh, not only do they, some people argue that Jesus was in danger, and some people argue that it was the Sabbath, and some people just say that there is this feast of dedication in John chapter 10, and so that's where this break belongs. It isn't. Look, if there, if there were not a chapter break, at the end of 8, beginning of 9. A chapter break which John didn't put there, by the way. It's not in the original text. It's something added hundreds of years later. If there was not that chapter break there, nobody would ever suggest that this event took place weeks or months later. In fact, if you just read chapter 8, verse 57, the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As he passed by, he saw a man blind, blind from birth. There's no indication from the text that there should be a break there, right? So might I suggest to you that since this takes place on the Sabbath day, that this happened in one of two times. If you go all the way back to John chapter 7, verse 37, you see that it was the great day, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus stood up and said, if anyone thirsty, come to me, and I will give you living water, and you will never thirst again, and come to me for salvation. That happened on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The last day, the great day, was the day before the Sabbath. So as he is walking out of the temple, if it is the evening of that very same day, John 8, when that happened, then he would have performed this miracle on the Sabbath. Or if it was the next day, perhaps he went into the temple and had the discourse with the Jews that we recorded in John 8, and then as he's leaving the temple, that would have been the Sabbath day. So either way, this happens on the Sabbath, either the very same day of John 8, the discourse, or the very next day. 
that happened on the Sabbath, that he healed this man who was born blind. It seems that as he is leaving the temple, right after the discourse, Jesus sees the man who was born blind. Now, would there have been a blind beggar at the temple gate? Now, there certainly would have been. You know where the best place for a beggar to beg would be? At the temple gate. And you know why? Because pious Jews who think that their salvation hinges upon their acts of compassion or acts of goodness to earn God's favor as they're walking into the temple ready to give their offerings and their sacrifices, they're carrying money with them into the temple. Right? And they're going in there hoping that God will be pleased with them for their good deeds and their charitable deeds. And look, if they've got to walk by a line of beggars outside the temple gate on their way into the temple, the, the beggars are hoping or expecting that somehow spiritually they would be moved to compassion and give to them. And so it was a great place to beg. Do you remember in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John were going up to the temple in the morning and they saw a man out laying outside the temple gate, the temple gate called Beautiful, and he was lame from his mother's womb and he was begging for alms? That was the place where beggars begged. Now this man, it says, was born and he was born blind. He was blind from birth. That makes him very unique. And here's why this man is unique. In fact, he is unique in all four Gospels. This man is unique. What makes him unique is not that he was blind. There were other people who were blind in the Gospels that John, that Jesus healed. Some of them before this event and a couple of them after this event. And later on in John 9, we'll look at some of those other examples of Jesus healing blind men. What makes this man unique is this. In the text, it is designated that this man was born in this condition. In all four Gospels, of all the people that Jesus heals, demoniacs, blind men, deaf men, people unable to speak, people unable to walk, of all of the miracles that Jesus did, this is the only man that we are told in the Gospels was in this condition from his birth, congenitally. This is the only one. Now, there may have been other people who were born blind, but the Gospel writers don't mark that out. Here's why this is unique. I don't want to make too much out of it, but listen. What is unique about this is the fact that he was born blind is a central feature of the entire miracle. That's what's being discussed. That's what raises the issue with the disciples. The fact that he was born blind is why they ask the question that they ask. Later on, the man who was born blind, he goes back and his neighbors see them. They know that he was born blind. They wonder, how did you get your sight? When the Pharisees call his parents in, what do the Pharisees ask? Is this your son who you say was born blind? And the parents say, this is our son, and he was born blind. The fact that he was born blind is a central feature of the whole miracle, and here is why. Because if he was born blind, that makes his this miracle even that much more mag- magnificent, that much more spectacular. And it serves to highlight that the unbelief of the Pharisees, in the face of such evidence, as a congenitally a congenital disease, That type of a healing, in the face of that much evidence, it shows how hard-hearted and blind truly their unbelief really was. So this man is unique because he was born in this condition. He was born blind from birth. I want you to think for a moment about what it would be like to be blind. Some of you can't see well. You see maybe with glasses. And some of you maybe know people close to you who were born blind or have a hard time seeing. I want you to put yourself for a moment just emotionally in the in the shoes of this man who was born blind. Of all the bodily infirmities that you could be asked to bear, blindness, I think, would be one of the worst. Now, if you talk to somebody who is who is deaf, they may say, well, I'd be willing to trade my sight for hearing any day. Or if you talk to somebody who is crippled, they may say, well, I'd be willing to trade my sight for the ability to walk. From somebody who has the ability to hear, taste, smell, see, um, and walk, of all of the infirmities that I can imagine, Blindness, I think, would be one of the worst, if not the worst. And and here's why. If you are blind, 
you miss out on so many of the blessings that, that you and I take for granted each and every day. You realize that? The beauty of your spouse, the beauty of creation, the beauty of your children, the beauty of your surroundings, living in North Idaho. I mean, if you're living in Saskatchewan or the prairies or something, being blind, maybe not that big of a deal, but to live in North Idaho and to be blind, that would be a serious sacrifice. Of all of the places, of all of the bodily infirmities to have, that one robs you of so many of life's simple pleasures. Not only that, but do you realize how much your sense of security and safety is contingent upon your sight? Right? If you are blind, you might know or be aware of a danger in your surroundings. Maybe a dog barking or growling or somebody walking around you. But if you can't see what that threat is, then you have no idea what that threat is. And furthermore, you can't even protect yourself from that threat, can you? You're really helpless. A lot of your safety, feeling of safety and security comes because you can see. If you're standing there, you hear a dog growling and barking at you. You don't know, is that dog on a leash? Is that dog with somebody? Is that dog barking and growling at me? Is that dog about to attack me? And you don't know if that dog's going to attack you until that dog is one of what? Attacked you. Right? And can you defend yourself? Not easily if you're blind. Furthermore, your, your ability to provide for yourself is significantly hindered if you are blind, particularly in this culture, which we find out from verse 8, the man was a beggar and he was begging and he was known as his neighbors as the one who used to sit and beg. Because in that culture, if you couldn't work, you couldn't eat. And in that culture, if you couldn't see, you couldn't work. In our day, we have all kinds of safety nets for people who are born with infirmities like this. We have social security things that provide for them. We have organizations that help the blind and provide provide jobs for the blind. And in our day, if you're born blind and you're lucky, you can become a referee in the NFL, make a lot of money. But in that day, without the NFL and without the ability to be a referee, if you were born blind, you were born in a condition where you just could not provide for yourself and you were entirely dependent upon the generosity and compassion of other people. So if he is unable to even provide for himself, he is not providing for a wife and children. And if you're not able to provide for a wife and children, then this man probably did not even enjoy the blessings of having a family. He is a beggar. Beggars did not get married and raise children because beggars could not provide for even themselves. They were the poorest of the poor in that society. So that is his condition. Now, I want to point out something about this man and this whole thing, and we sort of alluded to it last week. There is a spiritual symbolism, a spiritual irony that's taking place with this man. One of the ironies is the connection between chapter 8 and chapter 9. At the end of chapter 8, when Jesus walked out of the temple, he hid himself from their sight. Remember that point out last week. These men were blinded to his presence. And as Jesus walks out of the temple, he meets a man who is blind to his presence. This man then becomes a living, breathing parable of the truths that are given in chapter 8. This man becomes a living, breathing parable of spiritual blindness. And the ones that we see in the whole chapter that are really, truly blind is not this man, but the Pharisees. And we find out that they're spiritually blind. They are entirely spiritually oblivious to all truth. And this man really becomes a parable of you and I, does he not? You and I are born in this condition. This man is born spiritually blind. People who are born into this world are born spiritually blind. This man's born physically blind. You and I are born spiritually blind. Unbelievers are spiritually blind. They're not born with the ability to see spiritual truth and apprehend spiritual truth and appreciate spiritual truth and respond to spiritual truth. They're not born with that ability. We are born in our tre- dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are born blind to the truth. Blind to the truth of the gospel. Blind to the truth of who Christ is. Blind to the truth of who God is. Blind to our own danger under the wrath of God. And blind even to the reality of our own sin. And Scripture describes this blindness and this darkness in which we walk. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 says, The people walk in darkness and they have seen a great light. And that is seeing the light of Christ. That ability to see and to come out of the darkness 
is itself a gift of God and salvation. It's not that all men have the ability to see, and so if we wander around in darkness with the spiritual insight that we have, it's that we are born blind and we walk in darkness. And then when the light of the world comes into the world, He gives to spiritually blind men the ability to see and apprehend spiritual truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, a familiar passage says, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of them that do not believe, so that they cannot behold the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is a blindness that all men have who come into this world. The God of this world has blinded men's eyes so that seeing, they cannot see, and hearing, they cannot really hear, and they cannot comprehend or understand it because they are blind to spiritual realities. And we are born in that condition. So this man becomes a spiritual parable, not just of the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees, but of the spiritual blindness of all men born into this world. Think back to the days before you became a believer in Jesus Christ. How many times did you sing hymns and songs and even Christmas hymns and Christmas songs. This struck me this last year during the whole Christmas season. How many unbelievers sing, Joy to the world, good Christian men rejoice, Hark the herald angels sing, O silent night. They sing Christian theology in these hymns. And someday these unbelievers are going to stand before God and say to themselves, that truth was right there in front of me. I sang that theology. With my own lips I sang this theology. And yet I was what? Blind to it. Think back to the time before you got saved. How many times were the gospel presented to you and the truth given to you? And how many times have you said, I've said it, how could I be so blind to the truth of, of Scripture, to the truth of the gospel? But now, once my eyes have been opened spiritually, now I see just how blind I was when I thought that I really saw spiritual truth. There's another parallel here to something that it is salvific, and I want you to notice this before we move on to their question, the disciples' question. Who is it that takes the initiative in the passage? You see who it is that does, takes all the initiative? It's Jesus. The disciples do not say to him, hey Jesus, here's a man who could really use some compassion. Why don't you heal him? The disciples don't suggest this. The man doesn't follow after Christ. The man doesn't stand up. He's not even aware of Christ's presence. All of the initiative in the passage, the way John describes it, all of the initiative is taken by Jesus. Jesus sees the man born blind. Jesus answers the disciples' questions, and Jesus takes the initiative with this man. In other cases where people are healed of their blindness, they are brought to Jesus, or some of them come follow after Jesus and call out to Him, like in, I think it's Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us, two blind men, and Jesus heals them. But in this instance, the initiative all rests with Jesus Christ. He is the one who takes the initiative. It is His sovereign work. It is His act of compassion. He is doing this entirely. And I, I think in a, in a passage where really one of the, the hidden themes of the whole thing is the spiritual blindness of men, it is, re, it is something that brings joy to my heart to realize it is the Lord our God who takes the initiative and brings about healing for this man. Without being asked, without being followed over, Christ seeks him out. And let's look at their question. That's the man in his condition. Now I want you to look at the question that the disciples ask in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? There's a very slight contrast here. By the way, there's an irony. Jesus saw the man born blind. What did the man see? Nothing. I think you can kind of smirk. Jesus saw a man born blind. A little bit of an irony there, kind of a little play on words. But I want you to notice the subtle contrast between Jesus and the disciples. As they're walking out of the temples, Jesus sees a man who needs compassion. He sees a man who is born blind. Jesus sees this man's condition. Jesus further sees a man who is given to him by the Father who needs salvation. He sees a man who is one of his sheep who is going to bring salvation to. And what do the disciples see? A question. That's what the disciples see, a question. They see an opportunity to have a theological question answered. Now, I'm not going to push this upon you, but I am surprised myself at how often I see somebody in need. And you know what I see? 
an opportunity to explain to my children why the economic policies coming out of the current administration have caused this man's condition. Or I see somebody in need and I see here a theological opportunity to explain to my children the effects and the ramifications of Genesis chapter 3 and the sin that has brought all of us without ever really seeing the person in need. Jesus sees a man who needs compassion. The disciples see an opportunity to have their theological questions answered. And so they ask him, what is basically a theological question? Now here's what we want to do with this question in verse 2. Of this question, we want to answer three other questions. First, what is behind their question? Why do they ask this question? Why is this brought up? There is, there's a reason why this question comes to the disciples' minds and they ask it. Second, do we see examples of the disciples' thinking in our world today? And third, what is wrong with their question, if anything? All right? What is behind their question? Do we see examples of their thinking today? And then third, what is wrong with their question? I think if we ask and answer those three questions regarding their question, the answer to those three questions will help us understand the question behind their question. That sounds like a recipe for clarity, doesn't it? So the very first one, what is really behind their question? What is it that they're asking and what is behind their question? So when they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? There is behind that a common, well-accepted, well-known Jewish theology, Jewish thinking, Jewish doctrine, Turns out it's entirely wrong that informs that question. And here was the thinking behind the question. The Jews believed that anyone's specific suffering could be tied or connected to their specific sin. Now I want you to notice what they are not asking. These disciples are not asking, is sin in this world the reason there is suffering in this world? It's not generalities that they're asking about, but specifics. They're not asking, is this man's condition the results of Genesis 3 and the fall? And we would answer that question how? Yes, it is. All sin in this world is the result of Genesis 3 and the fall. Man's disobedience, not God's creation, and not God making men sin, all of everything in this world, all the disease, the death, the suffering, the destruction, all of it has been brought about on us by Adam's sin. And our culpability in that sin, and our willing participation in that sin. So right now, all of creation groans under the curse of God upon it because of the sin that that one man has brought into this world. And so death by sin, and so death is passed to all men. And so all who are in Adam die as a result of that sin. But that is not what the disciples are asking. The disciples are asking, not is sin responsible for this, but what? What is the sin that this man or his parents have committed that is responsible for this? They are assuming this. That this man's suffering, his affliction and his infirmity, can be traced to one particular sin. That's what's behind their thinking. That's what they're asking. And that was the Jewish belief of the day. And the Jews were notorious for this. They, they would take a disease or an affliction that somebody was struck with, and they would say, well, we can trace that to this sin. And if you committed this sin, then this infirmity would come upon you, or this disease. There were rabbis who suggested that people who con- contracted leprosy or who contracted blindness sometime during their life, or lost their hearing during their life, that these things could be traced to individual particular sins. Widely accepted question, widely accepted doctrine of their age. And so that's what they are, that's what's behind their thinking. Now listen, there are examples in Scripture where somebody suffers an infirmity, or an illness, or even death, because of specific sins that they have committed. Can you think of a couple? 
Miriam, in Numbers chapter 12, she was struck with leprosy because she disobeyed Moses and rebelled against his authority. In John chapter 5, when Jesus healed the cripple who had been crippled for 38 years, he said to him, go and sin no more, lest a worse condition come upon you, implying that Jesus knew and this man knew that there was some sin that had caused that infirmity. And he was aware of it, and Jesus was calling on him to repent. The Corinthian church was told by Paul, for this reason a number of you are weak and sick and a number of you sleep because you have profaned the Lord's Supper and blasphemed God while you have partaken of communion. So God does reserve the right to send judgment upon people for their specific sins in the form of physical maladies or afflictions or suffering or infirmities. But we are wrong to assume that that is always the case. And that is what the disciples assumed. They did not ask Is there a sin behind this man's infirmity? What did they ask? Whose sin is behind this infirmity? They are assuming that every infirmity and every affliction is the result of somebody's sin. That's the assumption of it. Now you can understand their theological conundrum. Here's their theological conundrum. This man was born in this condition. Now you see, if this man had become blind sometime during his life, that would have fit their theology, right? Because then they could have pointed to a specific sin in this man's life and said, well, because you have lost it, or because you didn't keep the Sabbath, or because you dishonored your parents, therefore this affliction has come upon you. But when a man is born in that condition, then it presents a theological conundrum. And they can only come up with two options. If we are to believe that his infirmity is the result of a specific sin, then it must be either his own sin or his parents' sin. Only really two options. Now, if it is his own sin, how can his own sin cause an affliction that this man is born with? Well, the Jewish rabbis had a way of answering that. The Jewish rabbis said that it was possible for a child in the womb to sin. Now, you're ready for some some scripture twisting and some stretching? Here you go. Here's how they arrived at that conclusion. Genesis 25:22 says that in Rebekah's womb, Jacob and Esau, can, uh, uh, how does it word it? They, uh, well, it wasn't wrestled. It was some, what's the wording? I want to make sure I'm not twisting sh- uh, scripture myself as I'm explaining to you how they, uh, they were moving around, struggled together. That's where the child, that was it. They struggled together inside the womb. And this caused her to go to the Lord and ask, what is this? And that's when God said, two nations, right? And the older will serve the younger. Well, they looked at Genesis 25:22, and the rabbi said that was Esau trying to murder Jacob in the womb. So it was possible for a child to sin in the womb. Now, that is a legitimate, as far as the disciples and what they have been taught by the rabbis and what they have grown up with, that thinking, that was a legitimate, uh, that was a legitimate possibility to explain this man's condition, that he had sinned in the womb. But much more likely was this, that his parents had done some sin that resulted in this man's infirmity. That would explain why he was born this way. So without asking, does sin cause this, or is this because of sin, the disciples simply ask, who sinned? This man's, or really more likely, his parents' sin. Now if Jesus answers his parents' sin, then there's a follow-up question that you and I would have, right? How is that just that God would punish this child for his parents' sin? Now how did the Jewish rabbis, we understand how they would explain how somebody could sin before they were born, but how would they explain how God would punish somebody for the sins of their parents. They abused and misused other passages of Scripture to get that. One of them you're probably familiar with, Exodus chapter 20, in the 
passage on the Ten Commandments, God says, You shall not worship false gods or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So they use that phrase that God visits the iniquity of the parents on the children to the third and fourth generations, rather than understanding that as they should have, that that is not describing individual reckoning for sin, but a national consequence for sin. And that Moses is using there, and God is using an analogy saying, look, I will punish people to the third and fourth generation, but I would much rather show loving kindness to a thousand generations. So we've dealt with that in some newsletter articles on spiritual warfare, because you remember... Those passages are used by spiritual warfare people to say that you can have a curse and your family can be cursed to the third or the fourth generation because of some particular sin that you commit. The Jewish rabbis use those passages, the very, those very same passages to say this. That is why God will punish the children, the grandchildren, even the great-grandchildren for the sin of their grandparents. And so that's a legitimate possibility too. If it's not this man sinning in the womb, then maybe likely his parents have sinned and brought this curse upon this man. Now, if you read, and I'll just give you two passages, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 18, God specifically says, children shall not be put to death or punished for the sins of their parents. That was the way that God did it. God does not punish children for the sins of their parents. That's not how God works. God is gracious and forgiving and kind, and He does not have children put to death for their parents' sin. God is just, and so God punishes individuals for their individual sin. And that's what the Jews had missed. But they'd assumed that God was somehow punishing this man for his parents' sin. You and I are aware today that there are times when a child can be born with an infirmity that his parents create. There are examples of that today, right? A child can be born mentally or physically handicapped because its mother drank too much during pregnancy or used drugs or was promiscuous or had a disease. Sometimes children suffer the consequences of their parents' sin, sins both before and after birth. But that is not God punishing that child for its sin. The reality is that it should remind us that nobody sins in a vacuum. Everybody's sins, all of them, affect other people. Every man's sin affects his wife and his kids and his co-workers and his family and his church, everything. All of our sins have ramifications, ripple effects outward. But that's not being punished. Just because my children might suffer the consequences of a sin I commit does not mean that God is punishing them for that sin. So that's what's behind the disciples' question. So now let's ask ourselves, is this, uh, do we find, are, are we confronted with similar thinking today? Do we have examples of similar thinking today? There are examples that people thought this way other places in the New Testament. For instance, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus refutes this thinking by pulling two headlines out of the news of his day. One of them was the slaughter by Pilate of Galileans. And he said, do you think, he said to the people of, of his day, do you think that those Galileans whom Pilate slaughtered and mixed their blood with the sacrifices, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than you? What was the answer to that question? No. And then he pulls another headline straight out of the news. The tower in Siloam that fell and killed those 18 people. Do you think that those 18 people were more wicked than you are? No. But Jesus said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. They died, and you are going to die. And Jesus is saying, it has nothing at all to do with the accounting of God upon those individuals for their sin. The fact that a malady happened to them is no evidence that they were worse sinners than everybody else. In Acts chapter 28, the Apostle Paul on the island of Malta, when he was after the shipwreck, gathering up sticks, and he was bit by the viper in the sticks, and he shook that off. Do you remember what the islander said? Oh, this man must be guilty of murder or something horrible since this has happened to him. This is justice coming back to meet him. Even though he has survived the sea and the storm and the shipwreck, now finally justice is having its reckoning. And then when nothing happened, what did they say? 
Oh, he must be a god. Went from a murderer to a god. That was how they viewed things. If something bad happens, it must be because of some sin. This is some karmic reckoning of the divine justice scales. That was the thinking behind it. Does it happen to us today? Do you hear it around you today? Let me give you some examples. Every time a national disaster strikes or some disaster somewhere in the world, Christian leaders who should have hung up their cleats long ago rush to a microphone and a camera to begin to explain to us the mysterious workings of God's providence and his justice. So Katrina, we are told, was justice of God upon New Orleans for the homosexual population. And this superstorm is a result of this. And the, and the earthquake in Haiti, which kills tens of thousands of people, that's because of the witchcraft. And this tsunami is a result of this. And Really? That's what they say. And you know what the assumption behind all of that is? That if an, a malady or an affliction or an infirmity or suffering happens, that I, by my own wisdom, can connect that to their specific sin or something that deserves that. Let me tell you something. You cannot always know what God is doing in the midst of a national tragedy. There are whole denominations and even non-denominational denominations in our country who tell you that if something bad happens, you should examine your own heart to see what the Lord might be teaching you. Did you lose your job? Maybe it's because you're not spending enough quiet time with the Lord. Maybe you're not listening to His voice. Is your child born with a, an infirmity? What sin have you committed to cause this to happen? You should really examine yourself. Is your child diagnosed with leukemia? Well, you need to fast and pray and see what God might reveal to you would be the reason for this. I've, I've known pastors and had friends and, and, and run into people who will say, if attendance is down at church, well, it must be because something bad is happening at church. I need to go fast and pray and find out what that. And if something good is happening, it must be because it's the blessing and the smiling of God upon us. We must be doing really good if, this, if something good is happening. Happens all Listen for it. You will hear it constantly. You will even hear some people say, Something horrible has happened to me. Fill in the blank, whatever it is, X, Y, or Z. What is the Lord trying to teach me? What sin have I committed? What wrong thing have I done that I have forfeited God's blessing? That is the wrong question to ask. Entirely the wrong question to ask. Is God trying to teach you something? Of course He is. Can you know what it is? No. You might think you know what it is, and you're totally wrong. He might be trying to teach you an entirely different lesson, but it's not for you to discover. And listen, just because a bad thing happens doesn't mean that it's because you have done something to bring that upon you. You ever consider the fact that maybe it is that God gives suffering and affliction and infirmity to the people he knows are mature enough and godly enough to handle it and bring him glory out of it? That may be the very thing that God is doing. It might not be because you have done anything wrong. It might be because you've done everything right and he can trust you with that suffering. And in trusting you with that suffering, he knows that he will be glorified in it and you will be sanctified by it. Maybe that's what God is doing when a bad thing strikes. You see it around you all the time. We live in a culture, in an American Christian culture, that thinks that we earn God's favor and that God shows His favor to us when we do things to receive His blessing and to put our, to make ourselves blessable. You ever heard people use that? You gotta put yourself in the place where God can bless you. And you don't want to get out of that and put yourself in a place where God's gonna bring affliction to you. As if God still works by the quid pro quo covenant. That we do something to gain his blessing and then we can do something that might forfeit that blessing or even earn his affliction or his, uh, earn affliction or suffering from his hands. So are those, those are all examples of ways that we see the same mentality all the time everywhere around us because we are so inundated with a works righteousness based thinking that we think if something bad happens, it must be because I have done some particular thing to warrant this. 
That's what the disciples assume. Now, what is wrong with this? I've come up with five things wrong with this way of thinking and with their question. There are more than just five, by the way, and I'm saving some for later on when we get into John because we'll kind of flesh these out. But let me just suggest to you five of them this morning. Here's the first thing wrong with that. It assumes that God always settles all of his accounts in this life. It assumes that God always settles all of his accounts in this life. Is that true? Do the righteous suffer? Are the wicked at ease? Yeah, do you think Steve Jobs was pleasing to God? Or Bill Gates is pleasing to God? Do you think that men who make millions and live in luxury and are fat and are at ease and have no concerns and no worries and they just go through life, do you think God is pleased with them? Do you think God is pleased with Hitler allowing him to die in the arms of his mistress? Is God pleased with him because he received all those blessings? He ruled a country? Is that how God works? That's not how God works. Read, read Hebrews chapter 11. These are men who obeyed and had faith and loved the Lord and walked in obedience, believing His promises. And the author of Hebrews says, those men died having never received the promise. God does not settle all of His accounts in this life. There is another life, an afterlife, where perfect reckoning will be done. But you cannot presume that God is working out every act of justice here. And that everything brings some ramification that is the equivalent of God exacting His justice upon us. Second, it assumes that the providences of God and the mysterious workings of His providences can be known by us. Did you catch that? It assumes that the providences of God can be known by us. So when something bad happens and we have people who rush forward and say, I think I know what the Lord's doing in your life. Listen, you have no idea what God is doing in my life. You have no idea. None of us can untie the Gordian knot of God's providence and understand exactly what God is doing in any given situation. We might be able to see, okay, I can see why God would use this and how God might use this to sanctify somebody, but you can never come up to somebody and say, I know what God is doing. I know that this bad thing is because of this sin, and this good thing is because you have done this. You can't do that. You and I can't know the mysterious workings of God's providence. People say that. I always want to say, oh, you know this, do you? you got more wisdom and insight than anybody else and what God is revealing this to you, that you know what He is doing in this? Did God show you this outside of Scripture? You can never know and untie the mysterious workings of God's providence. You can only trust Him and embrace what He is doing and understand, as the song we're going to sing here in a few minutes says, behind the frown of providence, God hides a smiling face. Sometimes the clouds overhead burst with blessing upon us. And what looks to us like a horrible thing right now may be the very thing that God is using for His glory and for our good. And we might not even see that until the next life. And then we will look back and say, Lord, I would have had this no other way. Because I see now what you are doing in me and in those around me through what you put me through or allowed me to go through. And you and I, and we're going to get into this next week, have to believe that every bit of affliction and suffering is by God's divine appointment for us, for His glory and for our good. We have to believe that. If you don't, you will go batty. You will go batty. Or you'll adopt horrible thinking like the disciples. Third, this mentality promotes pride and and encourages us to compare ourselves with others. You can kind of see it implicit even in the question that they ask. Um, This bad thing happened to this person. It's because of that sin. But I haven't had that bad thing happen to me. So what does that say about me? I haven't committed a sin worthy of having a bad thing happen to me, right? When the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, what is implied by that statement? That the disciples who see have done nothing worthy of blindness and neither had their parents or their grandparents. And so what that thinking does immediately is begin to cause us to not only have pride, but also think more more highly of ourselves, but also to compare ourselves with others. 
And so, so I, I might say, for instance, his kid was born with leukemia. All four of my children were born healthy. Uh, she miscarried a child, but my wife has never miscarried a child. See what that does? You see what that thinking does? It makes you think of yourself more highly than you ought, and it makes you begin to compare yourself with others, and then you start to feel really good about yourself. And there's a further danger here, by the way. It, it makes us it makes us feel like we have an excuse to not weep with those who weep. I mean, listen, if God's trying to teach uh, you something because you're going through this affliction and suffering, and uh, God's doing something there, and that's the result of your sin, I don't want to step in and alleviate your suffering in any way. Why? Because then I might be short-circuiting what God might be doing in your life by teaching this thing. The last thing I want to do is interrupt his lesson to you. If I interrupt his lesson to you, and then you've got to go through that whole thing all over again. best thing for me to do is to let you just suffer it out to the best of your ability and learn what it is that you've got to learn. See how horrible that thinking is? A fourth one. It is completely unbiblical. There is no passage, there is no scripture, there is no book anywhere that you could get to, uh, that you could make fit this type of thinking the disciples are demonstrating. It's completely unbiblical. Do you think Paul was unrighteous because he suffered shipwrecks and beatings and stonings and persecution attempts on his life? Is it because of his unrighteousness? Is this thorn in the flesh because of his unrighteousness? Was it some sin in Paul's life that caused all of that affliction? How about Peter who was crucified upside down because of some sin in his life? How about John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos because of some sin in his life? Did the Thessalonians go through persecution, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, because of some sin in their lives? No, they were a godly, a godly church. And how about the saints in Jerusalem who suffered through a famine? Is it because of some particular sin? No. It's completely unbiblical. And the fifth problem with this way of thinking is this. It is entirely a practical denial of the truths of the gospel. See, we deny the gospel when we begin to think this way. I do something bad, God punishes me for my sin. I do something good, God rewards me in this life. Or if I'm being rewarded in this life, I have at least done nothing to make myself unrewardable. I have at least done nothing to take myself out of his blessing and cause his disfavor. Does that sound like the gospel to you? Does God punish us for our sins in this life? He does not. All of our sins were punished where? On Calvary. Past, present, and future. Does God discipline us? He does. Do we have to live through the effects or consequences of our sins? We do. But that's not punishment. That's not the same thing as punishment. Punishment is one thing. Discipline and consequences is something entirely different. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation to you. God will never punish you for any of your sins. He might discipline you. He might let you suffer through the consequences of your sins so that you could learn the peaceable fruits of righteousness, but he will never punish you for your sin. God does not punish us. Our sins were punished on Christ. Does God show me favor because I have done something to earn his favor? No. God shows me favor not because of anything I have done, but because of what Christ has done. God shows me favor because of him. Have I done nothing to warrant God's displeasure with me today? Before I got in the car, I had more than warranted God's displeasure with me today. But God is pleased with me, not because I have managed to this point to to please Him through my conduct. He is pleased with me because I am in His Son. And He sees Christ. And what Christ has done, God shows us favor based upon that. That is the Gospel. The disciples have got it entirely backwards. What is the answer to their question? The answer to their question is this. You're asking the wrong question entirely. It's a swing and a miss. They have missed it entirely. Asking completely the wrong question. And you'll see that when you get to verse 3. But that is for next week. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank You that in Christ You have shown us favor. And we thank You that all the favor that You have shown us is not based upon what we have done, 
You do not judge us by performance. You do not show us grace according to our performance. But because your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, took upon himself flesh, lived a holy and perfect life, in his passive and active obedience, he has done everything to earn us and gain us your favor. And so we thank you that we never have to fear punishment for our sins because we are in your Son. And we ask God that the truths of this passage, as we rejoice in these truths, that they might encourage our hearts together and help us to identify bad thinking when we see it around us and to never practically deny the gospel by thinking that we have in any way warranted or deserved your favor or to think in any way that you are punishing us for sins, knowing that they have all been punished in your Son. We thank you, God, for your grace and kindness, and we pray that you would bless and keep each one of us as we go this way. May the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the love of God and the the grace of Christ be with each and every one who belongs to him, both in this life and forevermore, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.